What's up, everyone? Thank you so much for listening to the Go Long podcast and, of course, reading and subscribing to Go Long at golongtd.com. As always, we like to include the happy hour sessions with our VIP subscribers right here for all to listen, for all to watch. I greatly appreciate those VIPs who chose to hang out with the Pro Football Hall of Fame quarterback Warren Moon. He was spectacular. Oh my gosh. So many stories from the playing days. Um, a lot of good, a lot of bad, and a lot of ugly, I guess is the best way to put this. He remembers death threats on the sideline uh, against the Cleveland Browns after throwing five touchdowns to some really, really good times in that run and shoot offense. He, he broke down how he threw a football, which was really interesting. Uh, needing to file down the nail on his forefinger. Uh, I think you'll find it fascinating uh, that that breakdown and yeah th- this is always about you so if you want to hang out with current or former players from around the country become a vip subscriber today at the link wherever you're listening to this episode we'd love to have you in these sessions and, and let me know who you want to hang out with it's always about you building this community up if you have a, a favorite player that you've always wanted to ask a few questions to over a beer this is your opportunity so Warren Moon did not disappoint. I think you're really going to love this one. Thank you, everybody, for supporting Go Long. Again, you can do so. GoLongTD.com. Become a paying subscriber today if you are not one. Monthly, annual, or, of course, VIP, always available. All right. Here is the great Warren Moon. Don't need any introduction, but let's do it anyways. Uh, 17 seasons, 50,000 passing yards. You won the five great cups before anything. Uh, nine Pro Bowls, three different teams. You did it late in your career. You just blazed a trail for African-American quarterbacks to this day. It's um, it's just an honor to have you on this, Warren. So thanks so much for taking a few here. Yeah, Tyler, thanks for having me on, man, and uh, really appreciate it and looking forward to uh, having a little discussion here and answering some questions. I just, I always tell everybody who will listen to just how, like, humble and approachable, and I mean, I, I, it doesn't matter if I'm working on a story on Jameis Winston or Tom Brady, Josh Allen, Tua Tonga Viola, I swear, you've got, you've got such a big family, you've got a million things going on in your life, you drop everything and always give me a few minutes, I just says, I think that says a lot about you as a person. So thank you for all the help over the years. Well, my pleasure. I, I try to be as accommodating as possible. You know, I've been a member of the media before, so I know how difficult your job is. And uh, in order to get a, a really true story and an and accurate story, you know, you've got to get guys who know what they're talking about. So if I can contribute to that and uh, add credibility to whatever you're doing, I try and do it. I think it'll be great to kind of get your perspective on, on on quarterbacks today, but your own career first. It's it's remarkable, and I, God, what are you most proud of? I guess for, out of everything, you know, CFL to NFL to what what you did for future black quarterbacks. Is there one specific thing that you think your legacy really should be stand the test of time? Yeah, I think my my legacy is going to be resiliency, just being able to bounce back from a lot of difficult situations to uh, 
deal with the adversity that I had to go through just to play this position uh, when, when people doubted me and either didn't think I could do it or weren't going to give me the chance to do it. I just kept, you know, forging along and trying to figure out and, and find out who would give me that opportunity. And at the same time, continue to keep trying to work hard and not get discouraged because of, uh, because of all the roadblocks. So uh, to be able to go from, you know, a young kid in Los Angeles, California, who was hard to get recruited to, you know, to go to, to go to college as a quarterback and uh, having to go to another country and, and then you end up in, in two different Hall of Fames and two different leagues. That uh, shows a lot of resiliency and and and, uh, and fortitude that you uh, you didn't give up. You you had some support. There's no question about. It. I had to have support along the way to make that happen. I didn't do it all by myself, but I had to have it inside of me as well. And part of that was my heart. Part of it was uh, my work ethic that I learned from my mother. And then part of it was just pure stubbornness that I wasn't going to tell me somebody some let somebody tell me what I could not do uh, without you giving me a chance to show what I could do so what, I mean, the career you had in college at, at Washington you're, you're anticipating NFL right away I'm guessing right maybe mid to late round pick get in with the team develop what was your expectation uh, college to the pros yeah, I was hoping to at least get a chance to get drafted as a quarterback. But, you know, most teams were saying they weren't going to draft me as a quarterback. And I had never played any other position um, except for maybe in Pop Warner football back when I was like 10 years old. So uh, I knew I was a quarterback. I had been successful as a quarterback at every level that I had played at, whether it was Pop Warner, whether it was high school, whether it was junior college or whether it was college. So I wasn't going to let anybody tell me that I couldn't do it. And not only was I successful at the position, but I was, you know, highly successful at the position at all those levels. You know, I was an all, all whatever quarterback at all those different levels. So why are you going to tell me that I can't do it? And I've already done it at this level. The, the uh, natural progression is to go to the next level and see if you can do it there. Well, all I wanted was a chance to do it. But when, when nobody said they were going to give me a chance or very few, I decided to go where they were going to give me a chance. And that was the Canadian Football League. The Edmonton Eskimos, uh, six six seasons up there and five championships. It's- yeah, I thought I thought I was going to stay my whole career, Kyler. I I uh, I, um, I enjoyed it so much. It was such a refreshing place to play. Um, we were winning, you know, winning championships, and you know, I'm, I'm setting records and different things like that. So it, it was an enjoyable time. I was being well paid while I was up there and my family enjoyed it. So I thought about staying there my whole career. And a lot of guys had done that. that went up there, especially African-American quarterbacks, like, like Condridge Holloway was up there and, and Jimmy Jones had gone up there and, and all these guys who had great college careers, but weren't given the chance to play quarterback in, in the pros. They went up there and made great careers for themselves. So I thought I was going to be that same guy, but, in the back of my mind, it was still burning at me that I could play in the NFL and, and, and uh, you know, how was that going to happen? And and I started getting all this interest from the NFL to come back down and play, even though I was under contract. So I had to wait till my contract was over before I could actually take that dive down into the NFL. But uh, once, once that happened, because of all the success I had had so early, I was looking for new challenges and the, and the NFL was still that challenge that was burning inside of me that I could do this. Man, and just what was that stereotype, that stigma? It's, it, it, I, for, I think a lot of people today forget what it was really like 
yeah. even five, ten years ago. But I mean, that's you're talking late seventies, early eighties. It, it had to have been magnified. Yeah, people just don't understand because today you see so many African American quarterbacks thriving, and and some of the best quarterbacks in the league, you know, Patrick Patrick Mahomes or Russell Wilson or or Dak Prescott or or Jalen Hurts, all these different guys that are doing so well in the NFL, they don't realize how it was back, you know, maybe 20, 25 years ago when when I was playing, when there was, I remember when I came in the league in 84, I was the only starting African-American quarterback. And there was only other one other quarterback in the league that was African-American. That was my third string quarterback on our team, a guy by the name of Brian Ransom. So uh, we've come a long way since then. And, um, you know, I think because of, you know, the way I was able to play over the course of a career, the way that Doug Williams came in and won a Super Bowl in 88, the way that Randall Cunningham played during that same time period, I think it kind of showed a lot of uh, owners and general managers and coaches that, hey, these guys can play at a, at a high level. Let's give some more guys an opportunity to do it. And then you just started to see the floodgates open after that. And I, I'm sure Chris is going to get into it here, too. We were just kind of a BSing about it before you popped on. But uh, maybe one of, if not the prettiest ball that we'll see thrown by a quarterback. <laughs> and it was just a perfect storm, right? After a few uh, you know, tough seasons in the win-loss column early on at, at, with the Houston Oilers. But the run and shoot, Warren Moon, it was stuff that we had never seen, really. Yeah, it was the same way uh, going to college. You know, I went to the University of Washington where um, Don James, the coach there, felt like I could play big-time college football. So he gave me the chance to play quarterback. And we knew it was going to be a rebuilding situation there. They were 2-9 and nine the year before we came up. He was a brand-new coach, brand-new recruiting class. So it took us a couple of years to get it turned around, and we finally did and, and won a Rose Bowl. And same thing in Houston. It took us a couple of years to get things turned around in the right direction with some good draft picks and, and some free agent signings. And we became a perennial uh, playoff team after that. We never got over the hump of winning the big one, but we were always right there and getting competitive. So um, uh, that, that'll that probably only be my only regret of playing in the National Football League, not winning that championship because that's what you play for. But other than that, I exceeded so many other things that I ever thought I would when I started playing football. What made that run and shoot just revolutionary, so different for its time? Well, you know, most teams relied a little bit more on the running game and more of a uh, a balanced offense where we were more of a spread it out. We we very rarely not that we didn't run the football because we always had a thousand yard rusher. But the running part of our offense wasn't the big part of our offense. We were going to throw the football over the yard. Uh, we did it in a, in a different way where instead of dropping back, we're, we're rolling out and, and doing things like that. A lot of our routes were adjustable with the receiver. Depending on what the defense was is what route the actual receiver ran. We called something in the huddle, but based off of what the coverage was, that could change. And if we all saw everything on the same page, me and the receivers, it was a very hard offense to stop. So um, I enjoyed it. It was it put a lot of onus on me as far as I had to be on that day because we couldn't like go into a game and say, okay, the weather's bad, so we're going to rely on the running game. That wasn't going to happen. No matter what the weather was, no matter what the conditions we were throwing, and I had to be on my game in order for us to be good. So I love that pressure of that. But uh, – 
it, it was a physical game on me at times. I took a lot of shots in that offense because of the amount of times I threw the ball. And you've just got receivers lined up all over the place. We're not talking max protect, right? I mean, you're going to take some no, shots. There's no max protect. Those are some really short corners. And, you know, when guys like Bruce Smith are coming through there and there's no title in over there to slow him down or anything like that, uh, you better get rid of that football quick or you're going to get that uh, that helmet in your side or in your shoulder or who knows where. I mean, shit, I can remember the uh, Vikings-Packers game where I think Chris Carter's trying to block Reggie White, right? Right. I mean, so that, it was even that tough at times for you back there. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. I remember Reggie White took Chris Carter. He was supposed to slow block him and then released to the flat. And he picked him up and threw him into me and sacked me. I mean, that's what Reggie White could do when he wanted to. He could just take over a football game. Well, you're forewarned. Chris and Bill, I, I believe, are Buffalo Bills fans. So I, I don't I don't know where, where they're going to go with their questions, but uh, I, I'll, I'll let them take the floor here. Well, you, are, you are in Buffalo, so you're <laughs> Buffalo Bills I just wanted to say, I, I, I was super excited to see that, uh, you know, Tyler had gotten you uh, to do this just because like Tyler said previously, like I think, and I still think you probably threw consistent, consistently the most beautiful ball I've ever seen. So my question is like, like what was your secret to that? <laughs> a lot of practice, first of all, especially as a young kid, um, there were nights where me and a buddy from down the street would just be out in the, in the, uh, in the streets with the street lights on in, in a, intersection where there was four of them so we had enough light where we could see the ball and I'm just throwing it over and over and over and over again and I and I prided myself on wanting to always throw a spiral so if I didn't uh it was disappointing to me or if I didn't I would spin the ball up in the air and say there must be something wrong with this ball because I'm it's not spinning for me right now but it was a lot of practice and um you know, my my uh, my fingernail length on my forefinger had a lot to do with it, believe it or not. And and uh, if if my fingernail length on that finger was the right length, that ball would spin like a top that particular Sunday. So that was something I always made sure uh, my my fingernail length was was filed down to a certain uh, to a certain level, and that had a lot to do with what what made my ball spin because it came off that fingernail. And you even see cuts in the ball sometimes from from how I threw the football. Well, I so, something just so simple as like the fingernail length would, would make such such a difference. But yeah, I mean, to to this day, I see quarterbacks, and I'm still like, I'm I'm still like Warren Moon still throws like the best football I've ever seen, which is uh, which is crazy. Let me, let, me, let, me t- let me tell you a quick story. Uh, we're we're in a two minute drill, a two minute drive against the Miami Dolphins. Uh, when I was with Minnesota, and I call a timeout on that drive to come over to the sideline, everybody's wondering, why did he call a timeout? What's wrong? Is he hurt? What does he need? Does he need some water or what? And I came over, and I told him I needed a fingernail file, and I filed my fingernail down, and it got it to the right length and, uh, and, and went back in and threw a touchdown pass to win the game on that drive. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, yeah, that, that is pretty – it's pretty which, amazing. Which fingernail was it, Warren? Sorry, Chris. Which, which one did it's you say? Four, it's the four. It's the forefinger on my passing hand. So your pinky? No, my forefinger. Oh, your forefinger. Oh, your four. I thought you said your fourth. Your fourth. Yeah, that's wow. that's where that's where the ball comes off. Yeah, that four that forefinger and um, 
Yeah, it makes it spin. Did you put it? I think Terry Bradshaw would like put his index finger on the point of the football. Yeah, I don't know how he did that. And Troy Aikman okay. did that as well. I used to yeah. study different guys' grips because, you know, when, when I would do football clinics or whatever and, and talk to young kids and, and try and teach them about throwing the football, it's really hard to say or try and tell somebody how they should throw the ball or how they should how they should grip the ball because everybody's hand size is different. And, and so I always tell guys, you have to grip the ball what's most comfortable for you. That That's how I started out my whole my whole uh, description of how to throw the football, make your grip something that's comfortable for you. I had a grip that was comfortable for me. Terry had one for him, Troy, and so on and so on. And then you go from there. Uh, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but uh, the playoff game against the Bills, like like halftime, like these guys like super confident, like the highest of highs. And then like, you know, as it went on, like, yeah, that was uh, – we were confident at halftime. There's no question about it. But I kept telling everybody, we got 30 more minutes out there. And there was some guys that were looking at me like I had three heads. Like, what are you talking about? You know, we're we're up 28-3 to three in this game, and uh, like almost it was over. But uh, it just goes to show that if you don't – if you don't stay on top of your game, if you don't continue to be aggressive, um, if you give a good team a chance to uh, have some life, and, and get some momentum, you know, things can go against you. And, and they definitely did against us in the second half. We got away from the things offensively we were doing that, to be aggressive going down the field and scoring. And then I think on defense, we played a much more um, relaxed, like zone coverage as far as trying to keep everything in front of us. And we, and we allowed them to create some momentum and some big plays. So, yeah, that's one of those games that will always stay with you because I really felt like that team was good enough to maybe go all the way to a Super Bowl, but you had to get past uh, Buffalo first. And uh, Buffalo proved they they were the better team that day and they went on to the Super Bowl. So uh, one of those games you always regret because you only get one playoff opportunity to, to win a game. And if you lose it, you go home. So that that game sent us home. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame. I, I'll never forget. I mean, I was at my end. Like, the game didn't sell out, so it wasn't on TV. Like, I, I had to listen on the radio and stuff like that. It, it was crazy. What, what it stadium is like? It was crazy. A lot of people had left the stadium, and then they ended up coming back, I guess, when they got in their cars and were listening to the radio and uh, turned around and came back into the stadium. And that place was crazy. I mean, I've never heard a stadium that loud and that crazy um, during that comeback. I mean, you were 36 of 50 for 371 and four touchdowns that game, too. I mean, if you don't believe in momentum, that's the game that should make everybody believe. Yeah, you you throw for three, whatever it was, and four four touchdowns, and you end up losing. So you you leave the game wondering what else else did I need to do or I didn't do enough. Basically, you you say, I could have done more, and and it needed more out of me that day. And I didn't give it. So... I think everybody took a little bit of personal responsibility for that game, no matter how good a game you might have had. It wasn't good enough. What was the one stadium you, like, when you looked at the schedule, you, like, dreaded to, like, go play in? Because they're just, like, just a-holes. You know what I mean? And then what was the one stadium that they were, like, you know, like, nice and pleasant? You know what I mean? If if, if that could be true for being an outside player. Believe it or not, Buffalo was one of them. (laughs) 
Uh, that was a very tough place to play. And not only did you have the uh, the elements because it was usually swirling wind in there, and and then you're playing against a really good football team, and then they had some very intimidating fans. I mean, their fans really got after you. I I remember when we were coming into the stadium, you know, there were people mooning us. Uh, they were they were tailgating. You know, the, the, I'm talking grown ladies, grown ladies like in their 30s or 40 years old or whatever bending over and pulling their pants down and mooning our bus as we're going by or, or throwing snowballs at our bus, you know. And I remember our security people told us when we went out after the game to make sure you didn't just hang out around the bus, you get on the bus right away because they were worried about, uh, uh, you know, objects being thrown at us. So that was one of the places that, that was a tough place to play. It was very intimidating. I think Cleveland Stadium was the same way. Um, and then whenever we played the Jets in New York, because the Jets fans were much different than the Giants fans. They were a little more rowdy. How do you think you would do in today's game? Like, do you think you would put up bigger numbers or? No question. No question. I mean, the, the rules of today's game are geared towards the quarterback uh, playing well. And if the quarterback doesn't play well, then your team probably isn't going to do very well. So uh, you see everybody doing the things that we did back in 1990s and um, with their passing game, everything is a spread out thing and, and uh, throwing the ball all over the yard. You know, the running back has been much more discounted nowadays. Uh, and that was my strength was throwing the football. So with, with today's rules combined with the, the style of play today, uh, you know, myself or a Dan Marino or a John Elway or somebody like that, we would have tore this league up right now the way the way the game is played. Because I'd imagine there's there's some hits that still make you wince today. I mean, you played in in in, in that era. That was the golden age. I mean, the '90s. That's really when you had the best quarterbacks to ever play, and you had to keep your head on a swivel because anything you you, know. you really did because you know we could get hit in the head and we could get hit in the knees and, and we could get driven to the turf and a guy could fall on top of us with all his weight. All those things were, were open game to the quarterback in those days, but that doesn't happen anymore. These guys are protected so much better than we were, which is, which is smart because they're a big part of what makes teams successful. So you should protect that position. I just wish they would have did it a little bit earlier in my career. Who knows? I'd still be playing. What was that one hit that really, like, that still, like, you know, that you remember? Oh, man. I had one against the Minnesota Vikings when I was at Houston, and uh, it was a linebacker. His name was Carlos something. I can't think of his last name. But uh, in the run and shoot, you kind of do a half roll, and I did a half roll to the left, and and I looked that way, and then if it's not open – my route's not open that way. I come back to my right side and our running back would have a double read on that play. So if, if the guy that's uh, not coming on his side, when, when I roll to the left, isn't coming, then he's supposed to turn back and, and, um, and, and, and block to the backside. So what happened is the linebacker did a delay blitz. He acted like he wasn't coming. And then when the line, when the running back turned his head, he came charging at me and, and, uh, 
as soon as I turned back to, to throw the football to the right side, he hit me right in my sternum and my rib cage area. The ball went one way. I went the other way. They picked it up and ran it for a touchdown. And to this day, I still feel that that hit in my sternum area. When I say get a massage or something like that, um, that area is still tender from that hit. So that was one of the big hits that I had in my career. To me, that is amazing, like how you just remember exactly, like the <laughs> thousands of plays that you have like been in, that you could exactly remember how that play played out. I, I'm impressed. Well, when you get hit like that, you study it over and over and over again to see if you did anything wrong. First of all, if I didn't, if I wasn't taking care of my reads or whatever it was, if it was my fault or not. Um, so I, I watched that play a number of times after it was over just to see, to make sure that I wasn't at fault and then exactly what we can do to improve that. So that doesn't happen again. But yeah, when a guy comes full speed at you at, a, at an outside linebacker and, and he weighs 235 pounds hitting you at coming full speed, you're going to remember that type of hit. <laughs> Carlos Jenkins, right? Carlos Jenkins. That's it. That's his name. I, I just pulled it up here. There, there it is. Oh man, it's it's setting up. We're buffering, but we'll we'll, we'll pull it up here eventually. It's it's I, I had no, I had no idea about this one. It is kind of a legendary hit, huh? Oh my goodness, yeah. That's just one. I had a couple of others like that, but the guy was it was more of a defensive back that came in and hit me like that. So it was a smaller guy, but him being a linebacker, uh, it just had a little bit more impact to it. Warren, um, yeah, I'm a Bills fan. Also, I wore North Carolina hat to uh, show respect. I know. I I just wanted to say uh, thank you as well. I mean, because I didn't I didn't want to wear the the Bills hat because I knew you had the illustrious career with the Oilers and and other teams. But um, no, you wear whatever hat makes you happy. Because <laughs> but I, I want to say you're, uh, you're an NFL fan. That's all. Yeah, that really matters. I just wanted to say thank you. I, growing up as a kid in the '80s, you know, you kind of get whatever, you know, before Sunday ticket, you get whatever, you know, game comes on and just watching you on NBC, you know, you playing, you know, in the, I did think about, you know, before the realignment, I guess AFC central, maybe, I guess it was like Browns, Bengals and Steelers maybe, or something. And you don't really remember other than the Browns, I guess the Bengals had some decent, but yeah, it seems like you guys, you know, really dominated there for many seasons. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say thanks for uh, all the great performances. But I guess one of my questions was um, in the Astrodome, you know, it's like share that with the Astros and it just looks like, you know, in a lot of those during that time period, they would just roll the carpet out, you know, and was that was that like playing on concrete with a roll of carpet on top of it? And how did you, how were you able to stay healthy? Like, as you alluded to in the run and shoot, you know, getting hit and, you know, falling on, you know, basically a carpeted concrete in the Astrodome. It's just, it's amazing. <laughs> well, the great thing was we got a chance to practice on grass every day at our facility. So we didn't have to practice on it. And so we only played on it every other week when you had a home game. So we only played on it once every couple of weeks, but it was a really, really bad turf, especially because baseball, the Astros and us used the same turf. So when they rolled it out, it also had, you know, the the uh, the inserts for where they had the base pads and all that was part of the football field. So you had these big seams in it 
as mm -hmm. well. So a lot of guys blew knees out, not only our own team, but other, other teams that came in and played on it because it was kind of an un, uneven surface. But then I think about maybe seven years into my career, we finally got another turf where one was for football and one was for, uh, for, for baseball. And, and it was a lot, lot safer, a lot better turf, but it was still AstroTurf. And that AstroTurf is a very tough, uh, a very tough surface to play on. And, and, you know, I've got the burn marks on my arms and, and my legs and knees to prove it. So uh, I'm so glad that they've improved the, the playing conditions for the players these days, but we were the, we were the Guinea pigs back in those days that had to play in those type of, of conditions. You know, one other, you were talking about being in the CFL and I was, you know, just looking up your career where I think it was like 84 when you started with the Oilers and it was thinking about, the USFL, did you get any like offers to play in the USFL or was there, did that like help your leverage maybe a little bit in signing with an NFL team or how, how did that work? I did, uh, I did get interest and I used that interest as leverage because I only want to go to the NFL. I didn't want to go to the USFL. That would have been like, you know, playing in Canada again. Yeah. So uh, I remember I met with Donald Trump, believe it or not. He, he owned the, uh, the, I think he owned the New Jersey, Gen yeah. New Jersey generals at the time. Yeah. I met him in his office in Trump tower. And uh, I met with the LA express cause I was from Los Angeles and that's where mm -hmm. my Canadian football league coach was uh, Hugh Campbell. Oh. Um, and I met with the Houston, the Houston gamblers too. So I yeah. met with three different teams, but really had no desire to sign there, but used that as leverage for, for the deals that I wanted to sign in the NFL. Yeah, you know, I, I remember the Cowboys like drafting Herschel Walker at the time, so they had his rights. Did the, did the Oilers like have? Did they draft you at one point, or how? How you no, were like a free agent? I was a total free agent, and there was no free agency in football at that time. So that's what yeah. made my situation so unique. I remember the day that I was uh, the day of the draft when I was a senior in college. After I had already decided to go to Canada and had signed. I was hoping I wouldn't get drafted uh, so nobody would have rights. And that, that's exactly what happened. We had 12 rounds that year. Some team yep. could have took a flyer and just drafted me and, and had my rights, but nobody did, which was great. But that just kind of shows you what teams thought about me as a quarterback at that time, that nobody yeah. even wanted to keep my rights if uh, on a 12th round draft pick. So um, I'm glad they didn't because I became the highest paid player in the league when I came in just because of the status that I enjoyed of being a free agent. Great. Well, yeah, I'm glad uh, I'm glad you're able to leverage that USFL ties. And yeah, I mean, being a free agent quarterback nowadays, is just, yeah, it's a, for a good court for the great quarterback, it's a bonanza. So yeah, did. Yeah, that's, that's where I got to know Jim Kelly in Houston when he was with the gamblers, um, when I was coming out of, uh, coming out of Canada and uh, he decided to go to the USFL instead of going to Buffalo right away. And, and we all know that he did sign with Buffalo and what happened after that was, was history. But uh, yeah, that's where I met first met Jim was down in Houston. Great. Well, thank you for doing this. And uh, yeah, it was, it, it was just a joy to, to watch you uh, in the eighties and nineties, and get it done. It's, and I guess the other point I would make too, just thinking about it is folks today, you know, they make such a big deal over Brady, you know, playing into his mid forties and Aaron, you, I mean, you, were you know the original kind of you know you you did that as well and and played well deep into your career after you know pointing out playing you know as as a great player in the CFL so you 
you had done it 30 years before everybody else. Yeah, I prided myself on the way I took care of myself in the offseason and my training regimen, my eating and and uh, all the things that Tom Brady even took to another level when, when you know, when he got on the, uh, what, do they, what do you call it, the, the 12, the something 12 plan yeah. or whatever it's called. Yeah, he's 12, um, yeah. And um, that's what it takes. It takes that type of dedication to your body, but you also have to stay away from major injuries as well, which I was fortunate enough to do. And and then you have to have that desire to keep playing, that competitiveness. And I still had that. You saw Tom still had it as well. And that's why these guys last as long as they do. They take care of themselves. They train well in the offseason. Um, and then they stay away from those major injuries. And then they have that competitiveness to just keep playing until their body tells them they can't do it anymore at a certain level. Man, you did it to yeah. age 44, right, with yeah. Kansas City? Yes, sir. And if it wasn't for the uh, OTAs and off-season programs, I might have played longer. I got tired of doing those, being in Kansas City and my family was in Houston. I got tired of going back and forth doing that because they just started that back in, I think, in in 1999, maybe, I think, they started the OTA program. And I just didn't like doing it, so I kind of lost desire for playing because I was being away from home too much. It's crazy to think you're throwing passes to Tony Gonzalez in practice. Right? We I threw with him every day. Um, he, he was one of the guys that I, when I got there, I kind of took over as like a mentor to him. And, and we, we became really, really good friends. And he had had a problem catching the ball his first year in the league. And then I came in and we just would work before practice and after practice on a number of drills where he just really focused in on catching the football and, that became one of his biggest strengths over the course of his career, how well he was able to catch it compared to what happened in his first year. So where he dropped a lot of balls. So it just shows that if you work at something, you'll get better at it. If if you have the desire to do it. You know what though, like all of the hall of fame quarterbacks, I mean, no, nobody dealt with you dealt with what you did, uh, you know, late eighties, early nineties. I think it was a sports illustrated article in 93, that detailed a game in 91 where you, like your oldest son hears just terrible things in the stands. He's asking you about it in the locker room. Everybody's Tyler's freezing. Camp. Yeah. He's <laughs> freezing up on me. You froze oh, up I'm... a little bit there, Tyler, at the end, you're talking about 93 and then you froze up. I tell you what, man, this internet. All right. Are we, are we good now? Any better yeah, now? We got you. We hear you fine. Okay. Gives me a second chance to ask it. That's uh, yeah. that's good. <laughs> um, but I don't think anybody really understands today what you really had to deal with in your career, Warren. I mean, 91, I think, is the game that was detailed in that uh, Sports Illustrated feature on you. And, and maybe it was 92, 93. Uh, so, you, you know, your son hears just horrific stuff on the way out of the game, asks you about it in the locker room. There's reporters around, cameras around. You take it head on. You explain to him what that word means. It's, I mean, other quarterbacks don't have to deal with that stuff, and and you're dealing it with with it in your prime as you're making the Pro Bowl, as you're pursuing a Super Bowl. How, how difficult was that for you, for your family, everything? Yeah, it was it was a tough situation for uh, for your family because you know I had dealt with it a little bit in college, so I kind of was was used to that that um, that type of behavior by fans some. But now I'm I'm at a stage where I'm married and I have young children who are being exposed to this, and they want to come to the games, they want to see their dad play, but 
then you're putting them in this environment where, you know, it could be very um, visceral with, with a lot of nastiness out there and, and a lot of it geared towards their dad. So my son was old enough to where he was starting to understand some of this stuff. And, uh, you know, he would come to my locker sometimes in tears, not so much because maybe we had lost the game, but because of the things that he heard and didn't understand. So, yeah, you had to kind of take off your, your football helmet and put on your dad hat, you know, right there on the spot and try, try and make it make sense to him. Uh, but at the same time, you're just, you know, you're mad as hell inside that your your kids even have to deal with this. And I remember after that, I, I ended up getting a private suite so my, my uh, family could sit in the suite and watch the games and not have to worry about what they heard or were exposed to. So, uh, yeah, it was a tough time, and and that was at your home stadium. That wasn't on the road where you usually would get stuff like that. So uh, things eventually turned around when we started winning, but this was early in my career when things weren't going as well my, those first couple of years. Uh, but I remember in uh, on my 35th birthday on the road in Cleveland, um, I had been to probably, what, five or six Pro Bowls by then, and, and – um, we had a game where it was on my birthday and, and I threw five touchdown passes in Cleveland that day. And they took me out of the game the last couple of minutes just to let the backup go in and then let the clock run down. And I'm standing on the sidelines, you know, waiting, just thinking about what I want to do that night when I get home for my birthday. Am I going to go out to dinner? What am I going to do? And then all of a sudden our head of security comes over to me and, and, and about five police officers. And he just says, Warren, uh, you stay close to us when the game is over because there's been another death threat in your life and we're going to escort you off the field. And and that's how I left the field that day, uh, just wondering if I was going to get shot walking off the field. I mean, those are the type of things that you got exposed to that I never talked about until my career was over, never told my family about it or any of that type of stuff. I just held it all inside of me. So just to, just to make people think everything was okay. This is uh, should be a moment of joy, euphoria, career game. What in the hell goes through your mind when you're told that? It was almost like all you could do is kind of say, you, you, you almost chuckled like, you got to be kidding me. Somebody really wants to kill me over a football game? And uh, that's kind of the way I looked at it. And then they asked me, they said, do you, this has happened before. And is, is this something that you want to know before? Before it happens, or you don't, you do not want to know about it. I, said, I don't want to know about it. Don't even tell me about it. Uh, if you think it's if it's serious enough that you think I need escorts off the field, then you tell me. But I don't want to know every time there's a death threat on my life. Oh my god! So it happened multiple times. According to the ER security people, yes. And you didn't say anything to your your own family after the fact. No. I didn't want to alarm them. Uh, that's the last thing I wanted to do. They had been through enough, you know, just dealing with the things that we had just talked about with them. Because not only do my kids have to deal with it in the stadium, of course, you know how kids are at school. They're teasing and, and oh, you guys got beat this week. Oh, your dad sucks. Or, you know, you, you, that's how kids are. So they had to deal with enough as it was uh, just being the, um, you know, the, the child of a, of a celebrity. And, um, so I didn't want them to have to deal with anything more serious than that. Now they're going to be worrying about me even, you know, living. So I didn't, I didn't just didn't want that unless it was definitely necessary. Was was there any part of you that was legitimately like concerned in, in Cleveland? I think you're always concerned. I remember I told a couple of guys in the team <laughs> when it happened and, and 
when we were all outside of the uh, the locker room after the game, you know, you kind of mill around until it's time to leave. You have family, friends, and people that come around. None of the guys wanted to be around me because <laughs> they didn't know what might happen. <laughs> so we kind of oh made more God. of a joke out. We kind of made more of a joke out of it at first. Then when we got on the plane, we talked more about it and, um, more seriously. It's so unbelievable. I. I can't. I, I'm just trying to picture if something like that happened today. Like, like the, the, well, it the probably does. We just, we it probably does. We just don't know about it. You know, those things don't ever come to light unless they're necessary. But um, yeah, that's what that's what you had to deal with at times. Being an African American quarterback in a a league that uh, wasn't ready for it yet. I imagine you just take so much pride, though, when you see Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes. I mean, the the, the best in the game are, are African-Americans at the quarterback. We, we're constantly reimagining the position um, and what it can that's be. What, that's what makes it worth it. That's what, that's what makes it all worth it, what you went through, that you're seeing all these other young guys flourish partly because of what you were able to endure. I, I know I'm not the only reason why these guys got their opportunity, but I know I played a small part in that. And uh, that's what makes you proud that that it all that stuff didn't go for not, you know, that that uh, you went through a bunch of stuff to really help another generation of guys play the game. And and they're playing it very well. They're playing at a high level. That's not to say that they don't deal with their own, you know, maybe racial things that happen, because you got to remember. We live in a society right now that there's a lot of racial racial strife, you know, whether it's whether it's. uh you know, the way Jews are, are, are attacked, whether it's the way uh, Middle Eastern people are treated, whoever it might be, whether whether it's gays, uh, whatever it might be. So there's a lot of that out there, and you just have to learn to deal with it. That's the kind of the society we live in. So I'm sure everybody deals with their own type of bigotry and prejudice in some way, somehow. You know what blew my mind about that story in 91? Maybe it was a game in December of 91 when your nine-year-old son here's the N-word, you're explaining it to him in the locker room. And that week, I think you had your TV show and you have every right to just give it to these Houston fans. I mean, all these insane rumors are being swirled about you that are all completely untrue. You can let loose and you apologized for the way you played. I I can't imagine how you have the humility in that moment to just apologize with all that as the backdrop. You know, because... That's that's the only thing I think they should be worried about or concerned about whether I play well or not. N- nothing else. You know, my family shouldn't be any of their concern. The color of my skin shouldn't be any of their concern. If I play quarterback and I play well, you cheer me. If I don't do well, then you you do what you want with me. But I judged everything on how I, well I played, and I felt like I had big enough shoulders that I could deal with with. Uh, with any blame that even if it wasn't all my fault, I could still take that blame on because I knew I was going to work my tail off the next week to be better. So I usually did that every time our team didn't play well. I always said I got to play better than I played today in order for us to win. And and I, I believe that. Incredible. Chris, Bill, uh, any, any uh, final questions here for Warren? Yeah. Like, Today's game, what three wide receivers do you wish you could like throw to if you were like playing right now? Like who who do you think are your top like the top three guys in the league right now? 
Wow. I really like Justin Jefferson uh, at Minnesota. Uh, I think he's a, uh, he's very special. You know, he doesn't look like he's a burner. He's, he's not the biggest guy in the world, but somehow he's able to make, he gets separation and he, he never drop. You never see him drop a ball. Everything that gets in his vicinity, he pretty much catches the football. Um, golly, there's so many good receivers in the game right now. Um, Devonte Adams is somebody I would love to play with. I love his releases. I love how he comes off the line of scrimmage. Uh, again, he has that catch radius where you just have to throw the ball in his area and he's going to make, a, you know, a quarterback's game so much easier because of his catch radius. You don't have to be as accurate. So he's another guy and he's not a necessary burner either, but he, for some, some reason he gets himself open. And a lot of that has to do with his releases off the line of scrimmage and, and just the way he runs routes. Um, God, I'm, there's a bunch of others, but I, I like the kid at, uh, at Cincinnati. Um, oh, Jamar Chase. Jamar Chase, yeah. He's, he's, he gets separation, like, right away. And very smooth in the way he does it. Um, yeah, just love the way he plays the game. Uh, again, he had a problem catching the football as a – Early in his rookie season, he's really improved that, and, and now you never see him drop any balls. And uh, him and Joe Burrow have a, a, a tremendous, uh, uh, tremendous rapport together. Uh, you know, I love Travis Kelsey from the tight end spot because of how smart he is. He knows just how to find soft spots in the zones and how to beat guys one on one. So th there's so many good receivers in the league right now, but that's three or four of them right there. You never really had you never really had a tight end to throw to, right? Because you typically ran what five wide receivers. In the run and shoot, we did, but not uh, in the other offenses that I played in. We had tight ends, but they weren't as they weren't as impactful as, except for Tony Gonzalez, as they are today. Uh, today's tight ends are more like hybrids. You know, they they're almost like they could play wide receiver if you wanted them to because they're fast enough, but they're big enough to play tight end too. So you can put them at tight end when you need them. You can put them in the slot if you need them. You can put them out wide if you need them because they have that type of ability. Um, yeah, Warren, just watching, you know, watching your career, just watching the games in the 80s and 90s, and Tyler alluded to it, just all the great quarterbacks. What, what, uh, you know, when the NFL schedule would come out and, you know, you realize you're going to play certain, certain teams, you know, what, what QBs did you look forward to playing against? And, you know, you knew it was going to be, you know, kind of a high scoring game, whether it was Dan Marino or John Elway, you played, you know, yourself a hall of famer, but you played against a lot of great QBs. What, what kind of games or quarterbacks would you kind of circle when, uh, you know, you enjoyed playing against? Yeah, those guys bring out the best in you. And, and you talk about a Dan Marino who I played against, I think, three or four times in my career. Um, you know, Joe Montana, who was considered one of the best at that time, loved going against Joe and just the 49ers in general because they were just so good as a team. Steve Young, the same thing when he came on to take over for Joe. Um, John Elway, we had some great playoff battles together that uh, he came out on the on the winning end a couple of different times. Uh, he was another one that I loved to play against because uh, he was one of the ones I was kind of compared to when I came into the league. And then, of course, Jim Kelly with the with the K-Gun there in, in Buffalo. You know, all those guys I just named are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And uh, 
I thought I played in one of the most quarterback rich eras that there was. Uh, there's probably eight or nine guys that, that I played against during that time that are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So I knew I had to bring my A game, not only when I played against them, but just every week just to, to become one of the, the top quarterbacks in the league, to make it all pro, to make Pro Bowls, to make MVPs or whatever it is, you had to be on top of your game because you knew you had all those guys you were competing against, even if you weren't playing against them each and every week. When you're, when you were growing up, who did you idolize? You know, I grew up in L.A., Los Angeles, and the Rams were my team. And Roman Gabriel was the quarterback when I was a young kid. And he was he was an Indian, uh, Indian descent. And so because he was a minority, that was somebody that I could kind of relate to because there weren't really many other black quarterbacks in the league, if any, at that time. Marlon Briscoe was another one who was in the AFL at that time with the Denver Broncos. He was the first one to ever, you know, start an NFL or or a pro football game. Um, And then James Harris came on when I was in high school to the Rams, and he was African-American. And I remember him leading them to a division championship. He made a Pro Bowl. So guys like that were guys that I kind of looked up to. And then, of course, Roger Staubach. He was somebody I really admired because the Cowboys were, were even, you know, big back in those days on national TV. It seemed like they were on every Sunday. So you got a chance to watch the Cowboys and, and Roger was, you know, he's known as Roger the Dodger. He could scramble and, and make plays and he could also throw from the pocket. And then he lived this incredible, uh, you know, Christian life off the field where he was just a great human being, had been to the military, won the Heisman Trophy. So he's one of those guys you would, try and emulate to be like that. So those are some of the guys that I really looked up to at the quarterback position. Now, what do you, are you still like an LA fan? Like who, what team, what team is your team? Is it, is it Houston or like LA? I root for for the teams that I played for. Um, So Seattle, you know, I, I not only played in Seattle for a couple of years, but I did their radio and TV broadcast for like 15 years. And I got, you know, I, I, I uh, broadcasted three Super Bowls with them. I have a Super Bowl ring. So they're one team that I, I, I root for. I root for Kansas City because it was the last place that I played. And they're, they're off on a great run right now with Patrick Mahomes. I got a chance to meet him when he before he even came in the league. Uh, I don't root for the Houston Texans. I root for the Tennessee Titans, who was, which is where all my history went to uh, when, the, when the Houston Oilers moved to Tennessee. And then I root for the Vikings. So the the teams that I played for, I kind of root for. And uh, because I have still relationships with all those teams, whether it be people in the front office or ex-players or whatever. So those are the ones I uh, I look at. Joe sliding into the nick of time. Bring us home, hey. Joe. Will do. Hi, how you doing, Warren? Nice to meet you. Um, nice to meet you, too. So I have a question about the 93 Oilers, because that's like the one team that like, I just I remember like NFL films like did a show just on that team and how crazy it was. And I remember I was like a kid and I was a Bills fan and what and it just seems chaotic that season. I guess if you can like what was it like for you that season? And to me, it was kind of shocking that they broke up that team when you guys won twelve games and and they were just like we're done with this. Were you did you think they should have broke it up? And also like how did you feel about that whole season as a whole with? Buddy Ryan and Kevin Gilbride punching each other on the sideline. It's just, 
It was a great Ty. That's your next book. Do a book on that <laughs> on that season because the, the 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 NFL films one was awesome on it. But what was it like yeah. there? And you think you got, they had the break? They should have broke up at the end. Yeah, and believe it or not, that was the year after the Buffalo collapse. Uh, so everybody thought that our team would never bounce back because of what we experienced in that Buffalo playoff game. But we did. You know, we went back to training camp with uh, with a sense of urgency that we were a better team than what we last showed. And we couldn't wait to get back on the field and, and, and prove uh, that we're a better football team than what we last showed. But, yeah, that season got off to a really weird start. Um, we had one of our players committed suicide uh, early in the season. Uh, one of our defensive tackles, Jeff Holm. Uh, and it was a controversial thing. And we had, you know, crisis managers come into our team and talk to us about, you know, what we had experienced with him, you know, taking his life like that. We had the, the Buddy Ryan, Kevin Gilbride thing that happened in a ball game. I got benched early in that season, believe it or not. We started out one and three and uh, I got benched and then came back in that same game against New England because the, the, the guy that took over for me, Cody Carlson got hurt. So I went in as a backup and, and never, never got off the field again. We won that game and we went on to win 11 games in a row. But during that time, I think one of our, our, our left tackle, no, our right tackle, David Williams, uh, his wife was pregnant and she went into labor and he, he wanted to stay with her as opposed to come into our game after they had the baby was born. So this became a huge national story, baby gate, because David didn't want to come back and play with the team and because he wanted to be with his wife and, it became a, a national story with women and, and you, I mean, it was, so we dealt with all these different things going on in that same season. And somehow, some way we were still able to win 12 games. Like you said, we ended up getting beaten the playoffs by uh, Kansas city. Um, I thought we were just mentally drained by the end of the season. I think that was one of the reasons why we got beat. We just, we put it all into to, to the regular season. And once we got to the playoffs, I think we just didn't have enough left because we ended up losing that game in the fourth quarter. But, um, yeah, that was a crazy season. They made a 30 for 30 out of it. And uh, and anybody who wants to see some craziness happen in a season, you know, watch that 30 for 30 because it was pretty interesting that we dealt with as a team but still were able to persevere through all of that and, uh, and win 12 games on that season. Did you think though, like they should have broke it up though? Because that's what I just remember. No. Like they, they, they I, broke I up. Go ahead. You know what happened was it, it, that was salary cap time, and that's when uh, the salary cap came into play. Now all of a sudden you had to worry about your, you know, the salaries of all these different guys, and we had some pretty high priced guys on our team. Me being one of them, and I think that's why I became expendable because I'm 38 years old at that time. Now they don't didn't know how much longer I'd be able to play. Um, and then, you know, they had a young guy behind me who they had just given an extension to and they couldn't afford us both. So I became expendable. And then we had some other guys on our defense the same way. So, you know, Sean Jones and William Fuller, some of these guys that were really good players just couldn't afford to keep them anymore. So they wanted to go young. And uh, that's what we ended up doing. But uh, yeah, I didn't agree with it because this was still a team that it wasn't like we were too old. Maybe my position was, but I was still playing at a very high level. I had gone to my sixth straight Pro Bowl that year. <laughs> two and 14 the next year. 12 and, and four to two and 14. Uh, yeah. And I felt so bad for those guys because these are guys that I had gone to battle with for, you know, five or six years. 
And we had been to playoffs every year uh, during that time. And now all of a sudden, because of what they did to strip the team like that, and then they became a, a lame duck team because everybody knew they were going to leave the next year to go to, to Tennessee. So nobody was coming to their games. You're talking about eight, 9,000 people in the Astrodome, in a 65,000 seat stadium. Uh, sometimes the, the visiting team had more fans in the stadium than, than the actual Oilers did. And, and they're telling me all this because by then I'm, I'm traded to Minnesota, but I'm still keeping an eye on what's going on with them because a lot of my close friends are on that team. So I kind of knew what they were going through and really felt bad for those guys. That's wild. What what are those teams that that is uh, shouldn't be lost in history? And I guess it's not with the Doc. So that that team, I'll say this: that team, I thought during that '90s stretch with the Bills, they were the they were neck and neck talent wise. I thought yeah. they were more talented than like the Chiefs or the Dolphins, like head to toe. And I always was like, why can't in your in your opinion, why couldn't you guys get like? to like the AFC championship game was like, I, I kind of wonder if like the coaching, like it was Jack Pardee. And I kind of, as a kid, I kind of remember like, Oh, this guy seems pretty, he's too laid back. Maybe. I don't know if that was the case, but like, I just couldn't, I couldn't fathom it. Cause you guys against the bills, it was, it was neck to neck in those, the talent wise. Like I did not want to, as a fan, I did not want to see you guys much in the playoffs because, because you guys were just loaded with so many guys. Yeah, we really did have a talented team. And, and at times we played really well together. Sometimes we didn't play well together. And I think um, the offense that we ran had its weaknesses, especially when it comes to trying to to, to run out the clock and win a game late in the, in, the, uh, in the time clock because our offense was geared. We had to keep throwing the ball. We weren't going to be able to run the ball and, and run the clock out the way our offense was geared. So that had a little bit to do with it as well. But um, yeah, we can, we really have nobody to blame but ourselves, and we just didn't play well enough at the right times in the big games. Good Viking team, so too. I mean, you kept you kept doing your thing. So th- this is a career that, I mean, it's going to stand the test of time for all the reasons we got into. Man, Warren, you're you're a legend. I can't thank you enough for hanging out for a full hour like this. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. And uh, we'll do it again at some point if you ever want me back. I got all kinds of stories. I played a long time. <laughs> we are we are always open, man. Absolutely, always welcome back. And uh, God, I, I can't thank you enough for always being just so accommodating with everything. Next time, I'll have to bring my virtual cocktail. That's right. That's right. We we got to get those get those uh, popping any any time. Actually, it won't be virtual. It'll be a real cocktail stick right here next. <laughs> Where are you? I didn't even ask. Where, where, where are you right now? I'm at, I'm at home in my office in, in Seattle. Yeah, I live in Seattle. And uh, I have a son in high school playing high school football. He's at practice right now, believe it or not. They're in spring ball, and their coach is, is a lunatic. So he keeps them out there <laughs> over three hours a night. Oh, my God. Well, hey, I man. There, I, I go out there and watch him play sometimes practice, and I get tired and end up leaving and go, go home because they're out there so long. I'm like, I didn't think people practiced this long anymore. Why Seattle, not Houston? Just curious. You know, when I came up here to do the Seahawk broadcast, um, for you know, I was up here 15 years doing that. I, this is just kind of where I settled, and uh, I'm down in Houston all the time. I was just there last weekend. I'm going back in two weeks because all my my grown kids and my grandkids live down there, so I visit a lot. But man, have you have you experienced the heat down there? Oh my God, it's it's 
it's just like a blanket. And it was that way last week. And I'm like, this is why I don't live here right now. It's just too freaking hot. That's good. Say, just, you, you, you're probably like the mayor down there, no? Like right, like in Seattle here, it's 70, I think it's 75 degrees, 74 degrees, which is perfect. And then you go down to Houston, it's 90 degrees and like 85% humidity. And it just, it just, you, you feel wet all the time. You always feel like you're, you're perspiring all the time. Well, if you ever come back to Buffalo, it'll be nice and cold and then they'll be sure to moon you on your way in still, I'm sure. Right? <laughs> yes, they will uh, give me the special treatment, which I'm used to, believe it or not. But yeah, they have very passionate fans down there in the Buffalo. I guess they got the new stadium approved and that's going to start happening here pretty soon. I hope it doesn't lose the uh, the personality that uh, their stadium has right now because that's what makes it special to play there. I think they'll keep it, right? It's, it's right across the street. People will still be tailgating, being dumb, know how, drinking you know too how much. People are when, they get, when people get into a new place, they feel like they got to act different. You know, it's like... Yeah. They're in an upgraded I facility, think, you know, or we got to act a little bit more uh, uh, with a little more sense and and a little more class. And you don't you don't want them to lose uh, what makes it special to go there and play. We got to see the pricing on the stadium because they're going to have PSLs there. Like the Bills tickets normally are pretty cheap. I mean they're expensive right. now, but like they're gonna they're gonna start doing PSLs, which has never happened. And as someone who who knows people in Buffalo who hate paying cover charges to go into bars, the idea of paying a cover <laughs> charge. Just to buy a ticket. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to go great, uh, to be honest, but it might. And, and that takes a different type of fan to do that. You know, the fan that's not, you know, a rapid fan that, that has that type of money, those type of people are, tend to act a little bit differently and they're not as rowdy and crazy. So we'll see if the same atmosphere is there in Buffalo after the new stadium is built. Beautiful. All right, man. Well, hey, we'll be All in right, touch. Man. Thanks so much, Warren. And thanks Tyler, everybody. Thank you, man. Yeah. All right. Thanks thank for you. having you guys. Have a great weekend. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks, thank Warren. you. Thank you so much. All righty.